Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen. This is episode number 25 of The Next Track, which is being brought to you by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable, yet simple-to-use storage arrays. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. For more information, visit drobo.com and keep listening for details on how you can save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo product. In this episode, we are continuing our talk with contemporary classical composer Timo Andres, which we began last week in episode number 24. Kirk, take it away. Let's talk a bit about your music. You are 31 years old, and you've written dozens and dozens of works. I'm looking on your website. Link, there'll be a link in the show note to Timo's website. Chamber music, keyboard music, large ensemble music, music with voices, and miscellany. You've got two albums on Nonesuch. One of your works, called The Blind Bannister, which is a piano concerto, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize this year. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, that piece started out as the, the idea was from Jonathan Biss, the pianist. He has embarked on this sort of massive project to commission companion concertos to all five of Beethoven's piano concertos. And I ended up being the first one. So I, of course, my piece is a companion to the second Beethoven concerto, uh, which, which was written first. And um, it's funny when, when uh, this was the second piece that I wrote for Jonathan, actually, the first being the piano quintet. And when he talked to me about this idea, I sort of, I wanted to figure out a way to kind of sit next to Beethoven on a concert without doing the postmodern collage thing that I talked about that I had done, you know, maybe a little earlier in my output. Also, there's there's just something about it being Beethoven. I mean, there's certainly plenty of composers who have uh, responded to Beethoven or quoted Beethoven or what have you. But there, I, I don't think I'd be alone in saying there's something uniquely intimidating about being asked to respond to Beethoven. And so I, I kind of, I knew that I, I wanted to write a piece that stood completely on its own two feet uh, and did not have to be heard in the context of Beethoven to be understood and, and uh, appreciated. And so I, I sort of, I, I'm trying to remember the timeline, but I, I think I spent maybe a, a month and a half just sort of fiddling around with little ideas from the Beethoven concerto and not, not even really thinking about how they would fit into my piece, but, but just sort of improvising on them and taking them apart and, and reducing them and decontextualizing and just, you know, basically applying all these random uh, transformations uh, and seeing what came out. And I sort of, the thing that I ended up sort of whittling away was this I, the, this pair of ideas actually from the cadenza of the Beethoven, which is a very interesting section of music in that he, he went back, I don't know, 15 or 20 years after he'd written the concerto and wrote down this cadenza. Can you just briefly define what a cadenza is for our listeners who don't know? So the cadenza is in a traditional concerto. It's it's sort of a a long solo break. So that, and and it's traditionally a, a an opportunity for kind of 
uh, virtuoso pyrotechnics. So sort of a long solo break where the soloist would either improvise or you know play a, a passage that demonstrated their technical ability. So so you know Beethoven would probably have he was a famous improviser, um, and of course we can't know what that sounded like, but it was really very much how he made his name uh, was as an improviser. But then, you know, 20 years after he wrote this piece with this blank space where the solo break would go, he went back and wrote down a fixed cadenza. And it, if, if you're sort of a, a little bit familiar with, with Beethoven's music, you can hear at this moment, the style kind of leaps forward. And it's suddenly we're in like, we're, we're, we've started out in very early, very classical Beethoven. It sounds almost like it could be Mozart or Haydn. And then suddenly we're in like, you know, middle period, like Beethoven, uh, you know, Eroica Symphony, um, Waldstein Sonata, like these sort of Beethoven at the, the height of his powers uh, type of style. I have, a, I have a question. I just wonder his motivation for writing down his improvisational style. Did he do it? For posterity, I mean, is that why he did it, or did he want it? Did he think that this was the way it should be done, or I mean, probably a probably a combination of posterity and publishing money would be my guess, because um, that that was a a big part of his in, income stream was publishing. But this kind of dissonance between these two styles of sort of being able to parse the development of a specific guy of a specific composer within the same piece struck me as, as being almost totally unique. I mean, I can't, I can't think of many other pieces in, in the literature where you can really do that. Well, there are composers who've revised certain of their works at a later period. Certainly. But don't the revisions more represent the later version of the composer than the earlier one? Right. The revisions are trying to sort of cover up the, the, the failings of, of the the, yeah. the earlier work. The failings of youth. Exactly. And we, we've all been tempted to do that. But I, I was just so fascinated by, by this, this sort of tightrope between the two Beethovens. And I ended up sort of reducing these things down to the, these very basic elements. And that, that's something that I've really been quite interested in for the past several years of what is the most basic musical element that I can start with that provides that that little grit that little uh you know grain of sand in the oyster or whatever that can sort of seed the development of a whole 20 or 25 minute work and then in the blind banister it was this combination of a downward scale and the opening triad of the of the concerto just an arpeggiated major triad and so the fact that beethoven went and developed these ideas later in the cadenza. And I'm sort of taking those same ideas and developing them into an entirely new piece. I don't know. It's, it's a very sort of abstract relationship to Beethoven that may have only been useful for my own compositional process. It's hard for me to have a sense of how the two pieces coexist on a on a program, sort of listening to them back to back. And and are they being performed back to back on a program? Oh yeah, in fact, every time that 
Jonathan's played the piece, uh, he's done it paired with the Beethoven. And actually the first, I'm playing the piece for the first time in January a couple of times, and I'm not doing it with the Beethoven. So that will be the first time that it'll be heard just standing alone. Let's pause here and we'll return to our chat with Timo Andres in just about a minute. I want to tell you now about Drobo Storage Arrays, the simple, safe, and smart way to protect your data. Drobo Storage Arrays connect to your Mac or PC via USB 3, USB C, or Thunderbolt, so that's easy enough. Now you can share or back up your home or office network and use Drobo apps to manage secure remote access. Drobo apps handle DNS registration and management and will set up a unique URL endpoint with the username you choose. The Drobo 5N and 810N use SSL certificates from letsencrypt.com that renew every three months to ensure your data is always encrypted end to end. You don't have to worry about man-in-the-middle attacks or data sniffers trying to grab your stuff. Imagine being able to access your data or stream your media safe and securely on any computer or mobile device anywhere. With Drobo Storage Arrays, it's not only possible, it's simple. Check out the entire family of Drobo Storage Arrays at drobo.com. And when you're ready to buy, listeners of the next track can save $100 on a Drobo 5N. With the features I just talked about, the Drobo 5D or Drobo 5DT by using the code TRACK100 at drobostore.com. Save $100 with TRACK100 at drobostore.com. Drobo, simple to use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. I wonder if we can talk briefly about the business of composing music, because you've mentioned a couple of times about commissions. Oh, please. This is my favorite topic. <laughs> you've mentioned a couple of times about commissions, and, and we had an email exchange a few months ago when I was asking you about publishing royalties that you'd get from streaming music. And someone from a classical music label pointed out that classical composers who are alive and would get these publishing royalties get much less because if their works are, say, 20 minutes per track compared to a four-minute pop song, then obviously they're getting less money per hour than other people. And you told me, well, you really don't get that much of that money. It's mostly on a commission basis. Yeah. So I'm thinking... Well, there must be this catalog of composers someplace. You go to, you know, findmycomposer.com and you want a piano concerto and you type in piano concerto and you find a list of composers. But it's not like that, is it? No, not at all. I mean, um, that's a very sort of utopian vision. I like it. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to register findmycomposer.com. Wait, we should, we should create a website, kind of like a dating website. You put in your profile, the instruments in your ensemble, and then you match up. You know... You're, you're not the first person to uh, tell me they, they wish something like that existed. And, and I think some people have tried to uh, implement something like that. But there's such a vast array of music out there. And, and there are composers who are writing all corners of the globe. And it's so hard to... It, it would be such a massive um, sort of cataloging effort to get that all together. And then, of course, you can't depend on the composers themselves to self-submit. Because, you know, you would have to be super established first, and then you can't be super established if you don't have all the composers. So it ends up being this kind of, you know, the, the, the world of composers and indeed the world of classical music as a whole is quite small. And um, most of the way that you build a career is sort of by connections and mutual friends and word of mouth and and reviews and articles uh maybe well 
Alex Ross wrote quite a laudatory article about you in 2004. Wasn't that a bit of a help? I think it was, though it's hard for me to say. It's, it's really, it's hard for me to know. Mainly because at the time that that article came out, I was so young. And I mean, none of that music that Alex would have been listening to for that article, or certainly that he wrote about in the article, none of it's even on my website. You know, it's it's all juvenilia. I would I would categorize it. You've erased that part of your history. Well, I mean, it's on my hard drive. Uh, <laughs> I can go back and look at it if I want to. I sometimes I I do just for kicks. But um, it's you know it's hard to know how a young musician will end up developing, and certainly, you know, I I wouldn't say that I was. A quote unquote prodigy, but I did have the advantage of being kind of active uh, f- from a younger age than a lot of composers. So when you get a commission, how, how does, so people know you, they've heard about you, they've heard your music in concert. As you say, it's a small world. Everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Someone says, I need a piano concerto. Is it that simple? Or are there a lot of conditions? You may not want to answer all of these questions because they may not be the types of things that you know should be public. If a pianist commissions a concerto, does he write the check? Does someone else write the check? Is it a an orchestra that commits that pays for it? Really depends. It depends. I've certainly gotten commissions directly from performers, though of course often it it can be very difficult to raise all the funds yourself. In the case of someone like Jonathan, who is, you know, a very established performer with uh, lots of institutional support behind him, he can sort of say, you know, I've come up with this project. I have, you know, he can then go to presenters who he has relationships with and say, I've come up with this project. What do you think about it? Um, would you be into the idea of co-commissioning or you know, being a presenter for this project. And, you know, that's not necessarily Jonathan himself who does that. He, he will have a, a project manager who, who will sort of deal with all these separate institutions. And in the case of the Blind Bannister, it was, uh, I guess, four separate institutions who contributed to it. Sure. For the, uh, the other four concertos that he's commissioning for that series, it, some of those partners are the same. Some of them are different. You know, an organization who may not have heard of me or maybe doesn't want to give me commission money, they might be very interested in commissioning, say, Caroline Shaw or Salvatore Chirino or two of the other composers. And so you begin to see what a sort of massive logistical effort it is to bring one of these together. It sounds like it's a bit like financing a movie. Yeah, a little bit in that you you try to hunt for producers who sort of share the risk, Um, except that in this case, it's not really, there's not really much at stake financially. And and certainly it's not as if an organization who commissions a new piece is necessarily looking to make a huge amount of money on it. Because like, 
how would they even do that? It's a prestige thing, isn't it? That they can say, yes, we commissioned this and it, it shows that they're contributing to the arts. Yeah, in a way it is. Doug and I were mentioning before we started the call with you that there's a, he was mentioning about how Frank Zappa was appreciated as a classical composer here in Europe. And I said to Doug, yes, and that's because in Europe, orchestras get state funding, which is not the case in the United States, or at least it's much more limited in the U.S. That's for sure. And, and you know, one, one could write entire dissertations on... <laughs> the sort of differing paths of funding in, in the U.S. and in Europe and the differing sort of aesthetic streams that, that may or may not result. In, in this country, we do depend on institutions and those institutions depend on private funding from corporations or, or individuals. And, you know, uh, sometimes... Uh, an individual will directly support one of us. Um, you know, some patron of the arts will, will come along and want to support a project that I do. Though more, more often it happens through an institution. And is that changing now with the advent of crowdfunding? I noticed that you have a work for, is it the Britain Ensemble? Britain Symphonia. Where they're asking for people to make donations, a sort of a crowdfunding appeal? Britain Symphonia... Um, that's a, it's a little bit different with them because they've already commissioned me and I am most of the way through writing that piece already because it's premiering in February. So it's they're more doing crowdfunding for their own organization. It's not really like they're crowdfunding my piece because like I'm guaranteed my fee no matter how much crowdfunding they do. Right. I have not done crowdfunding myself. Um, it's something that I, well, I, I guess I just, I, I don't usually have the type of projects that I feel like are quite right for that. And I think there are, each person has sort of a limited number of times that they can do one of those things uh, before it starts to wear a little thin. So I, I guess I've, I've been approaching it cautiously. I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to uh, support when one of my friends uh, or, or colleagues does one of those, and certainly wonderful things come out of them. You're doing something for the Boston Symphony Orchestra very soon. Yes. Tell us about this. This is uh, as close to a standard orchestra piece as I've written in a long time. It's a 10-minute sort of concert opener, I guess you could say, for straight-ahead orchestra, no soloist or anything. And it's it's quite thrilling. I mean, the Boston Symphony, for my money, is uh, one of the best orchestras in the world, and, and certainly maybe the best orchestra in the country right now. And I, when I've, the couple of times I've heard them under Andrews Nelsons, who's their music director, have just been fantastic. And I, I, I think incredibly highly of him and of, of the band so it's really thrilling I mean on the one hand I was very aware of wanting to give that orchestra something really meaty to chew on because every last player in that orchestra is uh, you know they're, they're a beast and also something that sort of that, that would sort of one, one feels a little bit of I, I guess you could call it the anxiety of influence in another context, but sort of the anxiety of wanting to live up to a commissioner in a way, 
Um, and it's not that I don't always try and write the best music for whoever specifically is commissioning me, but in the case of the Boston Symphony, I mean, my relationship, sort of one-sided relationship with listening to them goes back very far. When I was a, a kid, I studied at Tanglewood for several summers, um, so I, I grew up with sort of the, that orchestra in my ear, um, hearing them all summer long. So it, it's incredibly gratifying, and, and I feel very lucky for the, the chance to, to write for that kind of a group. So anyway, the piece, uh, is, it's called Everything Happens So Much. The idea of the piece is sort of, again, starting out with an almost stupidly simple idea and just sort of, you know, setting it in motion, like setting the Rube Goldberg machine in motion and watching what happens. And there's, it's, there are really only a couple of ideas in the piece. There's a, an arpeggio idea and a, and a scalar idea, again, similar to Blind Bannister. Um, though I would say this piece is very much more in the kind of uh, scherzando mode. It's, it's very active. There's a lot happening, uh, things sort of overlapping, things... A lot, a lot of that sort of dissonance or, or that sort of uh, grit I was talking about happens from different ideas going at seemingly different speeds at the same time and the sort of rhythmic dissonance that results from that. That sounds curiously like a composer who I appreciate a great deal, Charles Ives. Yes, and, and I think Ives was actually our first connection, the Concord Sonata, and Ives is certainly one of those composers who's very core to sort of my personal repertory. And yeah, I, I'm, I am fascinated by this idea of sort of creating the illusion because, you know, I, we're working with one conductor here and one score and I'm not doing anything crazy like Stockhausen or anything, but the idea of creating this illusion of multiple simultaneous speeds is very intriguing to me. And so each idea sort of has its own pulse, even to the point of having, you know, one idea seeming to slow down and speed up while the other is continuing at a constant tempo. And there are notational tricks to doing this, and some of them end up looking a little bit scary. I wanted to ask about that. There's a piece on Shy and Mighty, the antennae. Mm -hmm. There's a bit There's a bit at the beginning where there is some rhythmic dissonance, mm -hmm. where there's a, a, a melody line that doesn't quite keep up with another melody line, and then it kind of yes. gets ahead of it. And well, and that, I would say that is very, that is this idea at a very larval stage in development. Um, I think the way I did it that time was just say, ignore the other piano, like just go at your own speed. Uh, yeah. And then at a certain point, they line back up. Now that's a very easy thing to do when they're two musicians. Right. And no conductor. On the other hand, when you've got uh, 60 or 70 musicians... Yeah, that technique would uh, result in uh, chaos, I imagine. Uh, the other element of that is that my harmonic language has actually gotten much more complex in the 10 years since I've written Shy and Mighty. And so in addition to the rhythmic idea, I want to have the harmonies uh, sort of clashing and creating their own sort of uh, progression along with that. And so the idea of creating this harmonic counterpoint 
at the same time. That for me, that that sort of, and it's 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 very much this idea of craft of like creating these ideas that seem to be independent but just happen to perfectly create this this uh, this harmonic confluence, which is so interesting to me, and so that's really. I would say the the core of what I'm exploring in this piece and 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 just in a lot of my music. So this is going to premiere at the Boston Symphony Orchestra when? Uh, the premiere is November fifteenth, and they're doing it actually four times, which is nice. Always nice to have several chances at it. And uh, then it's actually being done immediately after at the North Carolina Symphony uh, this winter. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have a little lineup of performances straight out of the gate. It allows me to iron out all the little problems that are bound to crop up. So our listeners can discover your music on two albums, Shy and Mighty and Homestretch. Yes. Are any of the other works you've mentioned being recorded or soon to be released? Your um, That's an interesting question. <laughs> the Blind Bannister, for example, will that be available on record soon? I don't know about soon, but it's something that we are working on. The, the process of making a record, especially an orchestral record, is it's not something that you can do in your own living room uh, with with zero budget. You gotta <laughs> you gotta raise tens of thousands of dollars and deal with unions and uh, deal with rights and 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 so don't blame the unions. No, I love I'm pro labor. You have to rent a hall and you have to rent the equipment and I know. It's a lot easier if it's a solo piano recording where you can play it yourself. Exactly. Yes. Uh, if only all of my records are solo piano records. No, I mean the the two rec the two records that you mentioned are on Nonsuch and I'm I'm very proud of both of them, but they are the most recent music on those records is from 2010. And so they're there, I do have more recent pieces uh, on kind of other people's records. There, there's a, a new a new piece of mine on on uh, the violinist Yevgeny Kutik released a record I think yesterday uh, called Words Fail. There's a record by the the sextet Eighth Blackbird with a piece of mine on it. Um, a couple, yeah, there, if I, I list all these things on my website. Um, so if you're looking for slightly more recent music, there are a number of uh, records you can find it on. But yes, we are working on my next sort of solo record, and it will have the Blind Bannister and, and a couple of other things. So stay tuned. One last question. Any plans to record Ives Conquered Sonata? Ah. Uh... It, you know, it, it's not a big seller, but I have actually heard a recording of you performing it. That was a long time ago. And you've got the chops. It, it's, it was when I was a senior in high school. Wow. Okay. Though I will say that Ives fans are incredibly devoted, as as you yourself know, and that the Concord Sonata is one of those pieces that's sort of a, I guess you could call it like a cult classic. It's like a piece like a... Uh, Messiaen, uh, Tarangalila Symphony, or um, or the the Beethoven Gross Fugue, uh, these pieces that sort of inspire devoted fans to you know collect every recording. And I mean, I, it's a piece that has fascinated me for almost my entire life. And I was very lucky that you know my dad is an Ives fan and gave me a, a record of that piece when I was very young. I haven't performed the entire piece in a really long time. And so 
it would require <laughs> quite a bit of work to. I w- basically I would want to re- I would want to perform it a ton before I even thought about starting to record it because it's one of those pieces that anything you set down is going to be possible to set down in a million different ways. And I think once I recorded it, I would immediately want to record it again totally differently. Um, rather like Gould and the Goldberg variations, I would imagine. It's, and it's also a piece that is now attracting a level of pianist who maybe a couple of decades ago wouldn't have considered learning it. You know, it's funny to think that this piece that is over a hundred years old now, it's sort of just now uh, entering the repertoire in a way that it's becoming a standard piece that pianists learn. Uh, another example of that would be the Ligeti Etudes, which had a, a slightly shorter journey, which now, you know, every Juilliard undergrad is, is playing Devil's Staircase. Um, and these pieces, the thing that these pieces have in common is that when they were first written, I think both would have been considered impossible, or at least unfeasible. Or at least crazy. That's what a lot of people said about Ives back then. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are crazy. They're, they're, they're still crazy. I mean, that's one of the, one of the great things about Ives is, is the sort of controlled craziness um, that, that a really good performance can highlight. So long answer, but I, I still am fascinated with that piece. And maybe one of these days. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. Thank you very much, Timo. We appreciate the time. Thank you, Kirk and Doug. Check out Timo's website. Check out his records on iTunes and Apple Music and in record stores if you still have those. (laughs) And good luck with your premiere. Thank you so much. Kirk and I are about to pick our next tracks. That's what we'll be listening to next. We want to thank this episode's sponsor, Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. And be sure to use the code TRACK100 to save $100 on your next purchase of a Drobo 5N, 5D, or 5DT at drobostore.com. TRACK100 at drobostore.com. Kirk, what's your next track? Well, since we were discussing Charles Ives' Concord Sonata, it's only fitting that I choose as my next track a recording of the Concord Sonata. Whenever you first discover an emblematic classical work of music, you generally get imprinted by that work. It's the first version you hear that sticks with you, and you compare all other versions to that first one. And that's the way it is for me. The first recording of the Concord Sonata I ever heard is by Donna Coleman on Etc. Records, a very small label, but this is still available. She recorded the Concord Sonata, the three-page sonata, and four transcriptions from Emerson. But it's the Concord Sonata itself, which is about 51 minutes on this recording, which is really the, the most important work. You might not like the Concord Sonata, and if you're not open-minded toward dissonant music, probably shouldn't listen to it, but it's a fascinating work. It's this monument of dissonance and polyrhythms, and basically it's called the Concord Sonata. The actual title is Piano Sonata Number no. 2, Concord, Massachusetts, 1840 to 1860. And the four movements are named 1, Emerson, 2, Hawthorne, 3, the Alcotts, and 4, Thoreau. So these are four important people who lived in Concord in the middle of the 19th century. And Charles Ives attempts to put them to music with their ideas. It's a craggy work. It's full of dissonance, and it's complicated and complex, and it's one of my favorite pieces of music. 
the original piano work was written with a viola part for the Emerson movement and a flute part for the Thoreau movement. Most pianists record it without those uh, additional instruments. This recording has them. You'll find a lot of recordings, but I've always liked this one by Donna Coleman, so you can check it out. It's my next track. Doug, what's your next track this week? Well, we briefly mentioned Frank Zappa, and many people may not realize that while famous as a rock musician, he did compose many orchestral works, but they were rarely performed and recorded as orchestral works because, as Timo implied, it's hard to mount a performance with an orchestra, and Frank was often frustrated by that. Frank's last album during his lifetime is called The Yellow Shark. It was released in 1993, and it's a collection of live performances of several Zappa works by Ensemble Modern, the Frankfurt-based new music group. So if you're used to hearing Flo and Eddie singing the melodies on The Dog Breath Variations or Uncle Meat, you might be interested in how Frank really envisioned them sounding, and there are several serious and ambitious works here, too. This album is available on Apple Music to stream, and I recommend at least listening to the last piece, G-Spot Tornado, which Frank originally produced on the Synclavier because he didn't think human beings could pull it off. It's a tricky one, all right. Frank Zappa, The Yellow Shark, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.